dodges I ride in this wind On my good horse I call you My shiny black bass To the playhouse of fortune Billiburg is what I call the aristocracy of purpose. Billiburg is your NATO alliance where the European and uh, North American members working on best ways to control not necessarily the peoples of the planet, but also the natural resources. Again, Bilderberg is about two things. It's about money and it's about natural resources. But money ultimately loses its value if we have no energy, for example. It certainly seems to be one of the reasons why the whole thing exists at all is as a kind of um, intelligence service run block. Really they are uh, a lobby for the NATO countries. They certainly don't control the world although they would very much like to and they work very closely with the banking system and the military. You're listening to episode 722 unwelcome guests, Amelia of the European Deep State, NATO and the Bilderberg. I'm Robin Upton and we've just heard opinions from Daniel Eschelin, Charlie Skelton and Tony Gosling respectively. Three different angles on the Bilderberg group which I'm going to characterize this episode as a milieu of the deep state. Now the last time we looked at the Bilderberg group as such, back in episode 528, nearly five years ago, the group was much more secret than it now is. Somebody has leaked almost all the attendance lists online. I can't prove their veracity, we'll get back to that, but I think they are genuine and they do help understand some of what the group is about. I've got three pieces for you this week. The first two are just on the Bilderberg and the third one by Tony Gosling is much more varied but does mention the Bilderberg and its role in the larger project of control. So let's begin. This is Tony Gosling interviewing Charlie Skelton after this year's Bilderberg, that was June 2015 in Austria. And Charlie Skelton has done more than any other UK journalist in terms of reporting about the Bilderberg group. You were one of the few journalists that was actually at the G7 a few weeks ago in Germany, in Bavaria. Uh, and then you moved on, didn't you, during the sort of uh, week over to into Austria to the Bilderberg Conference. Can you just paint us a little picture of the contrast between the two big international meetings? Well, certainly. I mean, there were there were 3,000 journalists at, uh, uh, in, uh, in Germany for the G7 uh, in the most extraordinary circumstances. It was that they'd taken over an entire Olympic ice skating rink um, and, and built this media centre with workstations and information desks and, and uh, sort of relaxation rooms, giant relaxation rooms and buffets and free bars. And it was, it was the most remarkable thing. And they, uh, they, they talked about 
you know, they talked to me about how they just wanted to make life easy for for journalists, and 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 they were providing all this footage that was coming down from the schloss of, of you know the various leaders walking through meadows and and drinking their Bavarian pints and what have you, and then um, yeah, a couple of days later, about twenty miles south of there crossed over into Austria and, and just hit a kind of wall of police and some very, very heavy policing, the most heavy I've uh, experienced since 2009 at Bilderberg. And, and basically everything was done in the government's power to stop journalists doing their job. Uh, not that there were many mainstream journalists there, to be honest, but um, it was a remarkable contrast. And, and probably for me, the most baffling thing was, was witnessing the kind of sausage factory of news the, of, of the G7, where everyone, the journalists were all kind of had this uh, serious face on as they as they undertook this important work of basically repackaging uh, this this press re- series of press releases that were being given to them, um, and taking it all extre- extremely seriously, even though the whole thing looked like a kind of cartoon farce. So. I found I found the G7 much more disconcerting, actually, than the heavy policing of Bilderberg. Um, what sort of uh, reception did you, did you get? Because I understand that you had uh, police actually searching you in the hotel once you'd gone over the border. I mean, it sounds like, almost like uh, deliberate harassment. Oh, that was really harassment, yeah. I mean, I found myself with three policemen just in my hotel room at about one in the morning. And they wouldn't go. They were looking at my passport, even though my passport had been looked at by their colleagues I'd say five minutes pr- prior to that and eight minutes prior to that. I, I was so checked out. But no, they needed to stand in my hotel room and look at my passport. And they just stood there for so long, and it was so late. I just said, look, I, I can't wait any longer. I'm, I was really annoyed. I just took my shirt and trousers off and walked past them in my underpants and went, I'm going to have a shower. I took a shower, because it was the most aggressive thing I could think of doing, because I was so annoyed came out and they said, please put your clothes on, Mr. Skeldon, we need to go and check your car. And then I had to go and stand by my car, they checked it. I don't know how they thought I'd got past two police checkpoints and done anything of any consequence, but they wanted to do that. And and that just made me stand there in a searchlight for about 20 minutes. And that was really, that was the sort of, that was harassment, it was definitely harassment. I felt harassed and I felt impeded. And, you know, I I don't mind having, showing my passport around those events a bit. You know, that sort of, Okay, although it was done so much that um, I just couldn't believe they hadn't got um, uh, an accreditation process. And this is what just really, really annoyed me, that there was no formal accreditation process for the Bilderberg Group, considering how much state money was being spent on it. You know, there was military there, there was military uh, police, huge numbers, helicopters. Uh, They even had their kind of special Cobra police. I mean, it was a giant... Uh, state-run policing operation, but the state couldn't couldn't fork out a tiny line in their budget extra, their huge budget, to, to do some proper press accreditation, which actually would have saved the money because they would have spent less time checking people's passports. But anyway, that was my particular bugbear, the, the, the lack of accreditation. Yeah, they, uh, I mean, you know, they probably just enjoy doing a bit of harassment. That's I mean, that's part of it, isn't it? I think that it, the idea is to drive journalists away. Did, were you were you the only journalists that covered both of the conferences? No, there were a few other. I mean, I don't know whether any mainstream. I mean, I'm calling myself a mainstream journalist simply because I was reporting for the Guardian. I wouldn't. I'm not exactly a journalist by trade, but um, uh, the there were a couple of. Um, there were a few kind of uh, 
uh, bloggers and citizen journalists who did both and got accredited at the GCF. And I think everyone, I spoke people like um, Luke Radowski and Dan Dix, I don't know if you heard of them, but um, so they they had a very similar experience of a kind of um, uh, just a, a mind melt at, at the size of the G7 and then, a, a, then this cold bath of, the, of Bilderberg. And um, yeah, I, it's, it was, it was, it was properly disenchanting to, to be paid that little respect by that organisation. Well, look, I mean, I looked at the figures and the fourth largest contingent behind the bankers, uh, the industrialists and the politicians uh, is the press, the media. There's, I think, 22, even though uh, one of the things I saw said there was 18, actually quite a lot of the... Uh, technical people have also got a big hand in uh, news on the internet and that kind of thing. So uh, certainly the, the, the third or fourth largest contingent it are the press barons at Bilderberg. Uh, does, that, yeah, uh, yeah, does that does that bother you? I mean, it bothers me because it does suggest that potentially uh, the, the journalists are are you know also part of this kind of swearing to secrecy uh, of the their bosses absolutely, as they yeah, go and in. And of course, the boss of the BBC, Rona Fairhead from HSBC, was in there. Yeah, and and John, yeah, well, she, yeah, and she's got other hats besides that. Uh, you know, uh, she. Uh, uh, well, you've got some people like I mean, the Economist. The Economist is very well represented there. So you've got people that are on the board of the Economist, like John Elkan, because the Agnelli lot kind of own a large chunk of it, if not all of it. But um, so they're big. They're a big shareholder of of the Economist, and um, uh, and you had the new Economist editor in chief there. Uh, what is called Zany Meadows, and then but you had John Micklethwaite, who's who used to be the editor in chief, and now he's uh, he runs Bloomberg News. So you had the head of Bloomberg News there, uh, John Micklethwaite, but he's also you know he's also on the, uh, a senior member of British American Business as well, which is a, a, a lobby group, and um, so he, he's wearing a number of hats at that, at that conference, and I'm not uh, entirely. Uh, you know, comfortable as you say with with how many he's wearing, and and there's a, there's a lot of kind of a, a a mishmash of business interests, lobbying, I mean, lobbying particularly, and media at um, at Bilderberg, which makes me very uncomfortable. And a lot of a, a lot of very very senior lobbyists for you know the big trade agreements like TTIP uh, um, no, all, I mean... uh, are present at the. When I, co- when I covered these a uh, couple of these conferences in the early uh, noughties, um, it was Jim Tucker from American Free Press would go there, which is now rather a nasty magazine, although in those days it was a, a lot more reasonable. The, the, uh, he, would, he would chat to waiters, things like that, in the Bilderberg uh, Centre, wherever it was going to be, a few days beforehand, and he would meet up with them in the evenings and get, actually get leaks of overheard conversations. Any of that this year? Yeah, I mean... Uh, I got um, I got asked to leave the um, Bilderberg Hotel just after. I, I, I decided to just go in, and, and they were they had goodie bags this year, so they were handing out their goodie bags. It, most people had left, but there were a couple of um, um, couple of delegates still there, and uh, I I had a chat. Ended up talking to one of the actual um, steering committee members, or he just resigned from uh, uh, from Portugal. Um, but uh, yeah, you can do a bit of nosing around and uh but i, I kind of it kind of feels a little bit grubby i i just prefer them to to treat the media with just a bit more respect I mean, and, and a you, bit more normally if you look uh if you look at the names there they do seem to control most of the money in the western world lots and lots of real heavyweight oh, figures yeah. in industry and finance uh with the media 
Uh, this is what bothers me, and the politicians almost hanging on their coattails. Yeah, and the politicians are there. I mean, it was a very this, this year was a very um, it was very big on politicians. You know, there were three European prime ministers there, and the president of Austria was there, and you know, George Osborne was one of two finance ministers. The other finance minister, um, Alexander, what was he called? Alexander Stubb is a member of the um, you know the European uh, financial group of financiers, whatever it's called, the Eurogroup. They're going to be deciding. Greece's future. So, you know, there's a lot of um, policymakers there with um, uh, a lot of, you know, a lot of policies to make and a lot of lobbyists there with, who want to influence policies. And I think that's the, I don't really care if a bunch of, you know, uh, bankers and, and industrialists want to get together and have a chat. It's the, it's the presence of that many very senior policymakers and elected um, officials that is, is discomforting yeah, and i can see i mean you know certainly my experience is it looks as if i mean if you if you actually can see what's going on uh, inside through f- uh, photographers or as we you know as we, we used to do and you've been doing at the more recent conferences is it's very much the industrialists and the bankers lecturing the politicians uh not the other way around <laughs> you know, there's definitely a kind of power yeah. power game going on there well we saw that i mean we we, we witnessed that in action in copenhagen so last year uh, when um, uh, Sir John Kerr, who's the deputy chairman of Scottish uh, Scottish Power, and he holds various other directorships, um, and he's also on the steering committee at Bilderberg, and he basically lectured George Osborne for about 25 minutes. And when I say lectured him, he just told him what was what. And George Osborne basically listened. And you know, Sir John Kerr is one of the most senior uh, diplomats of his generation. I think he was the most senior civil servant. Um, and... Uh, he he was clearly in charge, and that you could you just watched the dynamic of them. The we took photos of it, and you can see that George Osborne was was being schooled. He was also, being told what was what. Also, it was, Charlie, it was a very good example of one of those meet, sort of meetings that take place there. Also, Charlie, the uh, biggest individual single company featured there was Google, with a whole load. Well, I think it was three uh, of their executives uh, there. This is interesting to me because uh, Google at the forefront of new technology. It seems that Google, uh, that uh, Bilderberg, are very interested in that, uh, and also uh, they are thinking, well, this new technology, we want to be in control. And also, there's there's another side of this, slightly more sinister, which is uh, Peter Thiel. Uh, and his uh, his project to extend life. I mean, it, it sounds like there's a real interesting high tech end to it all. Oh, definitely. And I mean, they've really taken them in the last to their to their bosom in the last you know last four or five years or less even. They've just moved in, you know, with Mundy from Microsoft and Alex Karp, who is Peter Thiel's sort of protege. He runs Palantir, uh, which is basically a CIA set up kind of data mining, data analysis company. And, um, yeah, Peter Thiel from PayPal is on the steering committee. And he's, yeah, and absolutely, the, the Google played a huge part in it. And Eric Schmidt is everywhere. You need to look, look, just look up Eric Schmidt and see what, he's, what boards he's sitting on. And, you know, he sits on the board of The Economist, for example. Um, and, uh, yeah, so they're very connected now. And Google's obviously becoming closer to the, to, the, to the heart of Bilderberg. And it's very interesting to watch Bilderberg as a group sort of shift into this high-tech arena. And it just shows, you know, when people sometimes, and, uh, you know, less and less, Bilderberg is written off as kind of old farts playing golf because, I mean, it just self-evidently isn't. But it's, it's even less that these days as they've, as they've shifted in 
to to the high tech arena. And yeah, look, absolutely. There's there's all kinds of uh, of interesting aspects. They talked about AI, and you know, I, I suspect it's they're looking at AI from the kind of That's big art- data, artificial intelligence sort of yeah, intelligence and uh, you know uh, profiling, you know, population profiling kind of way. But you know, there's all sorts of other fringe and not so fringe sort of uses of it. So, you know, like the director of engineering at Google, Ray Kurzweil, is that you know he's the the poster child of the singularity. He keeps going on and on about his desire to merge with machines. Um, so yeah, I don't think it's 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 wrong to talk about that because that is that's on the agenda, the stated agenda of, of a few of those people. So yeah. Quite a, lot of what they, quite a lot of what these people are up to, uh, the bankers particularly, is taking over. Now, I mean, I've drawn the comparison with a, a tanks and an army. You know, in the old days, armies used to kind of charge in and take over. Now, it seems the takeovers are being done as takeover, merger acquisitions, hostile takeovers, and using cash. Absolutely. I mean, it's a big... And, then, you know, uh, let's not forget also the hedge funds and the people like, you know, the private equity groups. And there are huge ones there, like KKR, which has recruited David Petraeus, the ex-CIA boss um, uh, and criminal, uh, into uh, uh, to run their global institute. So they had Henry Kravis there, who's the kind of Gordon Gecko of uh, of Wall Street, um, uh, who runs KKR, and he's there with you know his his right hand man Petraeus. So there, there are people there who whose job is to is to look at the kind of finance of of conflict zones and, and chaos and, and find out where the, the big bucks are, be, are to be made. And a lot of them have a lot of links through to the CIA. I mean, you know, we saw um, Kissinger and Petraeus left on the same jet this year, which is an interesting photo. Um, and, yes, yeah, so, you know, but, but, and that's always been the way with, with Bilderberg. It's this kind of slightly messy, fudgy sort of mix-up of Wall Street, the CIA, and, and other intelligence services. So there was, yeah, and the last couple of years, there's been a lot of intelligence services there. You know, people like Sir John Sawyers, who who last year was head of MI6, and this year has moved over to his own company, Macro Advisory Partners, because he decided to to cash in. He wasn't being paid quite enough as the head of, the head of MI6, so he wanted to get his corporate dollar in. Um, so that's what he's doing. And so this, if you look at the list and just just cast your eye down, you can see the the presence of the intelligence services. Um, and yeah, absolutely, the hedge funds and the banks, and they're not just sort of small. It's not just like they don't send their representation. It's the very heads of these things go along, you know, like Lazard and, and Deutsche Bank and all the others. Yeah, it so, does yeah, sound as it, if it, uh, was, it was a very highbrow group this year. Yeah, it sounds to me as if maybe the o- ordinary journalists and politicians, even prime ministers, are a little bit further down the food chain, aren't they? Yeah, well, it's kind of where I always think of. You know, people always say, well, what is Bilderberg? And, you know, uh, one of the things it is, is kind of the interface between the the big money and the big, you know, industrial and energy sort of companies and hedge funds and all of that, the people who hold the real power and the, the sort of, and some politicians. So it's where they interface. It's, you know, above all, above all of that is other, you know, other groups and other interests. But but this is where you can kind of see the bottom of that thing reach down from the clouds, and and, and you can see the uh, uh, I'm speaking metaphorically, obviously, but you can sort of see the um, 
the, the, it sort of hangs into view when they have to interface with politicians, and they do it. But you know, so over the course of three days, it's not like a, a lunch or something. It's an extremely regulated um, set of meetings and, and seminars. I mean, and I wonder. We, we spoke to one guy who, one of the actual delegates who was there, who runs one of, I think it's Norway's largest public energy company, and he was finding it hard, really hard work. He said, you could tell he didn't want to go back in, and he came for a chat, and he said, God, it's, you know, we said it, he said it's really intense, and, you know, and it's an intense three days, or four days or something, but, three, you know, it's a, it's a big, it's a big deal. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a large enterprise. It's a bit yeah, disappointed, kind of Charlie. Different. I was a bit disappointed no. to see your articles don't really appear in the Guardian newspaper. They're only online, which is a great pity. And uh, you know, but but one of them was uh, about politicians mingling with criminals. Now, do you actually have any evidence that the people are criminals? Oh yeah, well, some of them got right, yeah, uh, some of them got criminal records. Like um, Petraeus has just been given a suspended sentence. Uh, I think uh, I think it was, yeah he's for, for he's for leaking secrets to his mistress, and uh, then there's a bar, Rene Benko who's a uh, he's an Austrian he uh, he got given a year long suspended sentence for um, bribery, and uh, so yeah there's people actually in there with 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 criminal records but, I mean never mind the people that I mean practically everyone in there has had to resign in disgrace at some point from from a public office or you know. Not everyone, but there's a good there's a good few, and um, you know there's Kissinger's. God, I think he might have a some kind of questions being asked about war crimes in various well, countries. Well, I can tell you, I mean, but, there are several countries where Henry Kissinger, if he steps off a plane, will be instantly arrested, and and uh, that's for sure. Anyway, we're, we're still. Kevin's been very very patient from Avon Somerset Police Federation here. Kevin, how can we be in a situation where police, paid for by the public? are guarding a conference like this where as you just heard from charlie uh there are criminals inside people maybe who've had uh, suspended sentences that sort of thing uh, and, uh, and particularly bank I mean, we've got hsbc sitting in there these are people who've been uh, fined uh, uh, i think it was two billion dollars for money laundering in the united states and yet they've got off scot-free aren't the police facing the wrong way i think uh it's probably been said already but uh industrialists and the bankers they uh, run the politicians the politicians run the media the politicians also run the police service uh, at the end of the day you've got in, uh, if you look at this country you've got the home office and uh, Theresa May running the uh, police service so we're still accountable to them and uh, I guess it's just which way you follow the chain upwards isn't it uh, I know at the uh, police federation conference you were given a bit of a ticking off by Theresa May weren't you um, it's about what I expected at the police conference. Um, you know, it's uh, we've gone through an election. The uh, I suppose you get you reap what you sow, don't you? And uh, the voters have gone out there. They've voted this government back into power. Uh, the police service expects us to get the uh, kicking that we got as per usual. And I don't think anything is going to change. I think Theresa May will continue to have a go at the police service. Uh, we know that she's got another five years to play with us, and uh, it's just a bit like a kitten with a mouse, isn't it? <laughs> uh, also, Charlie, it's well worth mentioning there was a very different style of policing here in Britain at Watford two years ago when Bilderberg were here, wasn't there? Oh yeah, that was well. Yeah, I mean that was quite. You know, it was it was heartwarming to see the the not just not just the mainstream media who turned out in droves, but we had we had two thousand people in a in a in a field with another 2,000 being turned away and those are the police numbers so that's 4,000 people turned up which is you know 
definitely unprecedented uh, in the history of Bilderberg watching. Um, so, uh, you know, numbers have quietened down a bit since then, but, uh, you know, it's, the, the perceptions and the, 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 the rhetoric in the, in the mainstream media is definitely changing for the better, and, and it's been taken much more seriously. And, you know, it's been, it's been taken seriously finally by, the, by you know, things like the BBC. They did a dreadful piece on the Sunday politics, but, but actually online they did quite a good crunch of the numbers, and quite a few of the newspapers did fairly straightforward kind of analyses of the list, which we haven't had really before. So that's, um, that was all, all to the positive. Um, so things are changing. You know, maybe we haven't got 4,000 people, but, you know, we had a, there was a, a kind of uh, a, 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 a protest march in the town of Telf, which had about 500 people there. So, you know, 500 is not bad. And, you know, it did get some coverage and quite a lot of coverage in the Austrian press. So, and, yeah, but maybe the British press didn't do, didn't actually bother to send anyone particularly there. But, you know, they still... The, the, the rhetoric is changing for the better and, you know, finally it's being taken a bit more seriously because you, when you look at it, you, you know it's being taken seriously by everyone there and by the police outside, incredibly seriously. You know, they shut down the airspace. You know, they had a military radar station there, uh, a couple. You know, that's how seriously they're taking it. So, um, yeah, it's fine. It's good, to, it's good when the media finally kind of digs down and, and realises, yes, OK, there's a thing we can actually talk about in serious terms. Uh, old Labour Oxford economist Martin Summers. We, we, uh, I mean, I've been talking a couple of times here about about uh, industrial feudalism. I mean, what with the royalty as well, it doesn't take a lot of a leap of imagination to see this as a kind of sheriff of Nottingham-style feudal days, where actually they're completely invulnerable as a king would be. You know, no one's going to elect a king. Well, uh, Charlie will remember the speech I made at Bilderberg, the protest at Bilderberg in Watford, where in actual fact the police were very supportive of our protest. It depends where you are. In Catalonia, the police were also very uh, friendly to the protesters. Austria, obviously, there's something going on there. Uh, but when, what, one of the speeches I made at Bilderberg, I pointed out that Fernando Imposimato, who is the head of the Italian Supreme Court, the senior judge in Italy, who had uh, published a book which came out in 2012, uh, called uh, La Repubblica dei Strani Impuni, the Republic of the Un uh, Unpunished Massacres, basically saying that the intelligence services and NATO intelligence services in particular were responsible for terrorist activity in Italy of the 70s and the 80s. And he was investigating magistrate on many of these incidents, the Bologna bombing, etc. And he spoke in Corriere della Sera the week before the Bilderberg conference in Watford, saying, well, we think Bilderberg are the terrorists. He's the head of the Italian uh, judiciary. And, of course, you're not going to read about that in the Daily Mail, are you? Charlie, uh, I wonder if uh, if you think that there's, uh, from your point of view, if you think that there's a connection between the Bilderbergers and uh, a lot of the sort of conflict that we've seen in the world. Because, I mean, I, certainly one of the things I would say, is you, you've got to look at some of the arms firms, I mean, the EADS and representatives from BAE systems that go to these meetings, they seem to be quite wedded in with the ideology of expansionism, of NATO moving east into Eastern Europe, up to the Russian border, and they're also quite interested uh, in in uh, expanding and getting uh, energy resources from the Middle East. Well, what are your thoughts on that angle to the Bilderberg? And uh, Because they're very connected up with the NATO countries and, and, and that sort of expansionist attitude. Well, yeah, well, we've had the head of NATO at, at Bilderberg, I say we, the head of NATO has gone to the Bilderberg conferences uh, for the last two years. So, um, and, and uh, in Copenhagen, they had the head of the Allied Supreme 
plant. Well, I mean, uh, just to interrupt general. you, sorry, uh, but I was looking at some research which said actually every uh, head of NATO since the 1970s has been to a Bilderberg conference before they've become uh, the head of NATO. So it seems like there's the, you know, wow. there's a way of introducing introducing uh, the, new, the person who's about to be made the head of NATO to some of the politicians and uh, and that kind of thing. But anyway, uh, yeah, the, 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 it does look as if this is part of a kind of expansionist empire. And I suppose I go back to saying, is this a really a, a feud, something, something feudal about all this? Yeah, and... Um and you're absolutely right about EADS as well. They're 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 a big presence, and um, and you know, and uh, as I said, the CIA as well. So you've you've, you've got a, you've also got them. If you look at the agenda, you've got them talking about um, you know Russia and the Ukraine and that kind of thing, and they bring in their experts to do their to do their talks uh, and their seminars, what have you, and um, and thrash out their policies. So yeah, I mean, it's very it's hard to be specific about. About about tying in the the, the policies and and uh, and you know with what little information we at this stage know, but um, certainly you know you've got the the presence of of you know arms companies and and foreign ministers and things like that discussing uh, an agenda which is you know white hot when it comes to things like Russia and Ukraine. So yeah, absolutely, it's um it it's it's it, it, it's definitely on their kind of discussion table, and you know it's. It's hard to extrapolate a little more than that, and I'd be un- unwilling to myself. But, okay, fine. You know, yeah, absolutely. Uh, but do you, uh, uh, you think they've got an Achilles heel? Is there something that they're kind of not watching? Because I, I, it does strike me that they're, they're kind of dinosaurs from the Cold War, and, and actually, we're mammals, hey? Yeah, well, <laughs> well for now. Um, they, uh, I think... I think the, one of the Achilles heels that it has, if you're allowed to have more than one, is uh, is the pressure being put by the alternative media, and it's just a. Uh, there's so many more cameras and blogs and 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 you know Instagram pictures and YouTube channels being pointed at this meeting, and so much more kind of peripheral alternative. I'm not saying peripheral, but it's, it's becoming more of the most important area of debate, or rather the place where the debate happens, in the alternative media. So I would say that that's one thing they find quite hard, I think, to control. And, you know, young people are interested in it as a subject, and everyone's making their little films and their movies and putting it out, and it's getting watched and talked about. And so I would say that the the way that the... You know, and I, all my pieces are, you know, 90, 90% of them are just on the... Guardian website, but you know that has huge reach, and it's you know pinged out to you know to everyone that's got a a laptop and an internet connection. They can they can have a look at it. So I think that's um, that's a, a weakness of their old, slightly old school, um, yeah, Cold War desire to draw the shutters and 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 have their meeting behind closed doors. It, it, those closed doors that kind of are a bit leaky at the moment and it looks a bit silly when they when they're hiding behind newspapers and 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 tinted windows as they zoom in it's all that all does smack of the 1950s and 60s and yeah it, i don't think they're really managing to to play that card anymore I, I mean, the main main mission of Bilderberg, as far as I can read it, from right from its inception with the CIA funding in the 1950s and Prince Bernhard, the Nazi, chairing it for the first 20 years, has been to drive a wedge between Western Europe and Russia. Do you think they're going to succeed in that aim? Absolutely, yeah. Are they going to succeed in their aim to do that, do you think? 
I, th- I think that's, it does seem to be that's the, if you look at the kind of the Russian experts and the people they have, they're very sympathetic towards, you know, uh, our Western take on, on things. But that certainly seems to be one of the reasons why the whole thing exists at all, is as a kind of um, intelligence service run block sitting over against the East. Um, and I don't, yeah, I don't think that's changed very much at all. But, you know, you have people there that they're much more open towards China. You know, people like Kissinger are very uh, China-philic, whatever the right word would be. That's a terrible mishmash. But, yeah, um, but yeah, Russia, I don't think, yeah, is, is their, is their favourite country. But, I mean, I'm asking, I'm going to really press you on this, Charlie. What's your instinct? Do you think that they're, uh, in the next few years, are they going to succeed in driving that wedge? Because, I mean, obviously, we're in a difficult situation financially. Both Russia and Europe are interdependent of the trade. But it seems that the Bilderberg and that, that influence is trying to stop that. Are they going to succeed to stop it? Well, I, d- I don't know. I do, I do know that um, I'm sure Russia would get a kick out of the fact that Russia today is probably one of the biggest broadcasters that covers Bilderberg. And, um, <clears throat> uh, you know, they do a really good job of it, by the way. Russia's they do amazing in some of the things they do. And they, the fact that they turn out and make good reports and, and balanced reports about the Bilderberg group is, um, it must infuriate uh, the, the steering committee. But, um, so... I don't know whether they'll succeed in, I mean, who knows whether they'll succeed in doing it. They're just a kind of, they're one extremely powerful group. You know, there are many, and uh, and there are many with a very similar desire to keep Russia isolated and uh, and to keep turning the ratchet. So, yeah, uh, I don't know. I, I, who knows? I've, I haven't got a crystal ball. Now, I thought it would be interesting to pick up on a thread Tony Gosling left there about the research into the heads of NATO. NATO has a military head, Sakur, the Supreme Allied Commander in Europe, who is always a member of the U.S. Armed Forces, and until 1987 always used to attend the Bilderberg Group, not before their appointment but afterwards, although since 1987 this has been rare, so there's a different pattern evidenced amongst the Supreme Allied Commanders in Europe. Uh, Tony was talking about the Secretary General of NATO, the administrative head who organises committees, uh, meetings, policy decisions, so not the military side of things. And it's quite possible that all the permanent NATO Secretaries General have been Bilderberg attendees. I asked the question at one stage, I wonder how many of them were Bilderbergers before they got the job. And that's where this suggestion came, that the Bilderbergers, amongst themselves, chose somebody they liked, who was one of them, to fulfil this position. Now, Wikipedia reports that, quote, informal diplomatic channels, unquote, are the means by which the NATO Secretary-General is decided upon. Those would seem to be uh, one of these Bilderberg meetings. I think we need a new Secretary General. Who do you think, who of us, which attendee who we've already seen here can be relied upon, a safe pair of hands to do what they're told? All right, well, let's arrange for that person to get the appointment. So now a quick recap of the NATO Secretary General. The first one was Hastings Ismay of the UK a lawyer, diplomat and politician, and a career-long intelligence officer with the UK War Office. Now, he was confirmed as a Bilderberg attendee uh, for the 1955 Bilderberg meeting, 
by an article in the German magazine Der Spiegel, which pretty much asked the right questions. Uh, what are these people doing at this meeting that hasn't been properly announced anywhere? Now, that was the last the corporate media had to say about the Bilderberg for a long time. So somebody presumably put the word out that there was going to be a corporate media blackout effected. His successor, Paul-Henri Spark, long-time Prime Minister of Belgium, we know attended Bilderberg Conference after a 1963 mention in the Washington Post. Amongst other jobs, he held President of the United Nations General Assembly. His successor attended Bilderberg at least three times, according to these lists on the internet. He was Dutch Minister of Foreign Affairs. Now, his successor, Manlio Brosio, a former Italian ambassador to the USA, became Secretary General of NATO in August 1964, so was possibly the last NATO Secretary General to have been appointed without having attended a Bilderberg Group meeting. Now, he did attend in 65, 66, 67, according to these lists, but may have been appointed by a different informal diplomatic channel. Ah, now, one more point to note about Manlio Brosio is 15 years after being appointed NATO Secretary General, he spoke at the Jerusalem Conference on International Terrorism that we reviewed in episode 714. Now, his successor, Joseph Luntz, became Dutch Foreign Minister in 1952, a job he held until 1971, and a couple of months later became NATO Secretary General. Uh, that was a job he held for almost 13 years, during which time he didn't miss a Bilderberg meeting. And, as with all subsequent NATO Secretary General, he also attended before he got the job. Now, his successor, Peter Carrington, Secretary General of NATO for four years, was the whole time president of the Pilgrims Society. That was a post that he held for approximately 20 years, a member of the Bilderberg Steering Committee. If you don't know the Pilgrim Society, then I recommend you look into it, because that is another deep state milieu, like the Bilderberg like Le Cercle, which we've discovered seem to have their fingers in a lot of pies. And these people who are holding big jobs in multiple milieu tend to be the deep politicians who are actually pulling the strings rather than being pulled. Well, that's my inference. Now, his successor, German Defence Minister, Bilderberg attendee, the next permanent NATO Secretary-General, a Belgian Minister of Foreign Affairs, lost the job after it emerged that he was involved in a 50 million franc bribe case while he was Economic Minister of Belgium. Now, he said something interesting on the radio. It was in Flemish, so I'm not going to play the recording here, but the crucial point was that each Bilderberg participant is given a report and they are considered to use this report in setting their policies in the environments in which they effect. So pretty much a verbatim denial of the oft-heard claim that Bilderberg is not a policy-setting milieu.
that people come and chat informally, they don't decide what to do and they certainly don't attend in an official capacity. Now his successor, another European foreign minister, this time from Spain. Now his successor, George Robertson, or Baron Robertson of Port Ellen, if you'd rather. We featured on the show before, his name came up in show 694 because we came across Willem Matze, a Dutch military intelligence officer who was arrested at NATO headquarters in Brussels on suspicion of laundering around $200 million for a Colombian drug cartel. Now, it was a story that the commercially controlled media showed a pronounced disinterest in. Now, after the trial, the UK Secretary of State for Defence was asked about the matter in Parliament and replied curtly, I have not received any official reports regarding this case, nor have I raised the matter with the NATO Secretary-General. So, official silence all round. Uh, Matzer, just for the record, was found guilty of forgery and fraud. Uh, the prosecution decided to drop the money laundering charge because they couldn't find some evidence that they thought they had. So, anyway, he was released after 14 months in prison. No further sentence necessary. George Robertson, just possibly this is a coincidence, but yet let's record it for the record, was the father of three children in the school in Dunblane, where Thomas Hamilton murdered 16 children and their teacher. And people say that Robertson was one of those who gave references for Hamilton's firearm license and may have attended the same Masonic Lodge as Hamilton. If you're interested in following that up, researching that, perhaps contributing something to the official record, well, I think you'll probably have trouble on Wikipedia. They tend to censor this sort of stuff fairly alertly, so you might wish to try that on Wikispooks. Now, I won't continue with the subsequent NATO secretaries-general they fit the same public pattern. Different European countries, senior politicians, they've all been earlier attendees at the Bilderberg. None of them involved in any particularly dramatic deep state events. Now, possibly the deep state learnt its lesson after George Robertson's close escape with Wilhelm Matz's conviction and Willie Clay's bribe-taking case Possibly they said, well, we're going to have to make sure this doesn't happen again. If you're taking the NATO Secretary General position, you're going to be well insulated from any malfeasance. Now, that's one possibility. You might ask, well, why didn't they do that in the first place? And my suspicion would be yeah, simple laziness, because these are the people. Let's get on and do the job. Why do we need to make more layers of deniability? And also the thought that the more people who get involved, the more people potentially could spill the beans. So it gets a little bit harder to keep control if you're dealing with multiple layers of cutouts. So could it be a bit of private enterprise on behalf of the NATO Secretary General's assistant? Billy Klaus just decides he's going to get involved, try and make a bit of money. Uh, it doesn't seem to me particularly likely that these are private enterprises. If you're arrested for things which were carried out whilst you're in NATO headquarters, then how off the books could you be? Seems to me altogether more likely this is perhaps a semi-deniable operation 
but if you're a Dutch intelligence officer, then you're using your connections, the NATO planes moving backwards and forwards without customs checks, drug smuggling in natural business, if you've got that kind of potential. And this is a close fit with the revelations of Sibel Edmonds in episode 694 about heroin trafficking from Afghanistan to Turkey and top-level State Department involvement to stop DEA drug interdiction operations. The real telltale sign for me, yes, this was a deep state operation, is the silence of the commercial media and the official bodies. So yes, there were clearly some Dutch police, some legal organisations who were quite exercised about this whole event, but not the serious fraud office in Britain, not Europol, not a lot of energy went into chasing up what appeared to me to be pretty blatant breaches of protocol. Now we continue with the following interview by Bonnie Faulkner, who's interviewing Daniel Estulin for KPFK's Guns and Butter. And the interview is from 2007. Daniel Estulin is an investigator, author, and public speaker. His book, The True Story of the Bilderberg Group, has just been published in the United States. Already an international bestseller, having sold one and a half million copies worldwide, the book was on the top ten list for 36 straight weeks in Spain, 18 weeks as number one. The True Story of the Bilderberg Group describes an annual gathering where the European and American political elite and the wealthiest CEOs of the world all come together to discuss the economic and political future of humanity. Highly secretive, the press has never been allowed to attend, nor have statements ever been released on the group's conclusions or discussions, which have great ramifications for all the citizens of the world. The book also includes sections on the Council on Foreign Relations and the Trilateral Commission. A Canadian citizen, Daniel Estulin grew up in the Soviet Union, emigrated to Canada when he was 15, and currently lives in Spain. Daniel Estulin, welcome. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me on your show. You know, I do want to let you know before we start that uh, I found out about Pacifica and specifically about your work from friends of mine who live in Spain who have actually been listening for, for a long time to your broadcast. I, re- I really don't know how they get hold of it, but, you know, that's how I found out about Pacifica and Bonnie Faulkner. Well, Daniel, that's very interesting. That's great. I know that uh, the Internet has opened up uh, a world to everyone on radio, on the Internet. Well, I hope a lot of people all around the world listen down to our interview as well. Well, there you go. Let's hope so. Uh, your new book, just published in this country, I guess it's not a new book in Spain and in other countries, but it's just been published in the United States, The True Story of the Bilderberg Group. What's the Bilderberg Group, and what's a Bilderberger? Well, first of all, let me tell you what Bilderberg is not. It's uh, it's not a Jewish Masonic conspiracy, uh, although, you know, you go to the Internet and you see all these sites with very fragile logic trying to defend the, you know, the theory that it's a Jewish Masonic conspiracy. It is not. It's also not an Illuminati conspiracy, whatever the heck that is. And uh, uh, furthermore, and most importantly, I think it's not a monolith, meaning that no group of people, and I don't care how powerful they are, sit around a table in a dark room holding hands, staring into a crystal ball, plotting the world's domination. Billiburg is what I call the aristocracy of purpose. Billiburg is your NATO alliance 
whether European and uh, North American members, uh, working on best ways to control uh, not necessarily the peoples of the planet, but also the natural resources. Again, Bilderberg is about two things. It's about money and it's about natural resources. But money ultimately loses its value if we have no energy, for example. So that's basically what Bilderberg is all about. Very powerful individuals meeting in private during three or four days every year where they discuss the best ways to manage all the affairs of the planet. And how would you describe a Bilderberger? How many people, well, when was this so-called organization formed, and how many people does it encompass, and who are they? Bilderberg was founded in 1954. Uh, the first meeting was held in a little Dutch town of Oosterbeek, next to, uh, to Amsterdam. Uh, the hotel itself uh, was called the Bilderberg Hotel, and the uh, cover of the book, actually the photograph on the cover of the book, is the actual photograph of Bilderberg Hotel circa 1954. Uh, it was owned by the uh, Royal Dutch family, and that's why the Bilderberg Group, that's where they get their name from. They take it from the, from the first meeting which was held at this Bilderberg Hotel. There are about 120, 130 people who come annually. Forty percent of the invitees are from the United States. The rest are from Europe. Uh, Bilderberg is every president of European nation, the United States and Canada. American presidents don't go as a rule because, again, their time, every minute of their day is accounted for. But they're very well represented by other leaders, such as Richard Pearl, Douglas Fife, uh, Richard Holbrook, uh, it could be Donald Rumsfeld, etc., etc. Anyway, they are very well represented, and needless to say, the information gets to them. Uh, other members who belong to the Bilderberg Group are the uh, central bankers. Every central banker of all the European nations belongs to the club, uh, along with the president of International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, uh, Federal Reserve. You have all the European commissioners are members of the group as well. With them at the table sit all the representatives of the European royalty and uh, as well top 100 CEOs of the leading corporations such as Coca-Cola, Pepsi-Cola, Halliburton, etc., etc. And finally, they're joined by the leading representatives of the uh, corporate media such as the New York Times, Washington Post, uh, Le Monde, a group of research from Spain, BBC, uh, Financial Times, Wall Street Journal, Etc., etc., which is again one of the reasons we may not have ever heard of these people because the uh, Bilderbergers and the power elite feel that their business of doing private things uh, amongst themselves should not be revealed to us, the great unwashed. Now, do people actually have membership in the Bilderberg group? Is it that formal? Well, in, uh, in membership in a way that you know, they're card carrying members, no, they're not, they're no such things. Uh, but once you are invited, you're always a member, meaning that even the people who uh, might not be attending this year's conference get the, uh, uh, the minutes of the meeting. It's understood that that information must remain secret, private. It must never be revealed to anybody outside the group. Again, you don't need to threaten people. You have to understand that powerful people don't ever threaten anyone. It's just understood that if you're invited to participate or you're once a member, that information is only beneficial to you and others like you. So the Bilderberg Group is made up of the most powerful people in the Western world. I guess in your book it says North America and Europe predominantly. Bilderberg is your uh, NATO alliance. Uh, 
uh, you have other organizations such as the CFR Council of Foreign Relations, which is your American uh, organization interlocked with Bilderberg, and you have the Trilateral Commission, which is Americas, Europe, and Asia. That's trilateral, and that's you know that's a junior varsity member, uh, closely interlocked uh, with the uh, Council of Foreign Relations. But Bilderberg is the uh, the dominant forum amongst these three, simply because of its exclusivity. Yes, now I noticed in your book the true story of the Bilderberg Group that you've basically divided the book into three parts, the Bilderberg Group, the Council on Foreign Relations, and the Trilateral Commission. But let's focus uh, right now on the Bilderberg Group itself. Now, according to your book, they have an annual meeting of consisting of three or four days once a year, generally in the spring. Could you describe a typical day at uh, the Bilderberg meeting? Right. Uh, Meetings will always begin on a Thursday. They end on a Sunday, uh, usually somewhere um, closer to the end of May, beginning of June. Uh, The invitations a long time ago used to be decided and sent out uh, right at the end of the previous meeting. Uh, However, um, as of about seven, eight years ago, when they realized that all of that information was coming out thanks to our contacts within the group, they started cutting down on the privileges and on the need-to-know basis. Very few people within the group were actually getting that information ahead of time. So what they do now, because they're extremely paranoid, because they've been burnt quite a few times over the last few years by us, is that the information, although the dates are set about a year in advance, the actual place where the meeting is held is only announced about a week or two weeks in advance. Uh, they begin on a Thursday afternoon. Most of them come in on a Wednesday. One of the f- first people to come is usually David Rockefeller and his personal lackey. Uh, you know, the, again, the initial uh, meeting takes place on a Thursday afternoon. It's about a two-and-a-half-hour group meeting where everybody participates. On a Friday, you have a full-day meeting. They get up at 7 o'clock in the morning. Uh, the first meeting is held at 8, then there's a 10.30 break until 11. They go from 11 till 1 where they break for lunch, then they have short nap, I guess, and then in the afternoon again they go till about 8, 8.30. Uh, Saturday there's a morning session, and uh, Saturday afternoon they go for a boat ride, a helicopter ride, a bus ride, or they just simply play golf. It's important to understand that when these people meet, they do work very, very, very hard. They're not there just to play golf, and that's what they would like us to believe, that they are there to play golf and exchange war stories. In fact, they're not. They work very, very hard at the things that they actually talk about. There are six panel discussions. Each panel has about 20 participants. Three people lead the discussion. Anybody who participates or who is present must participate. There are no watchers or onlookers. People can speak for one minute, for two minutes, or for five minutes. The one-minute speaker gets to go first. They raise one finger, uh, or two fingers, or five fingers. And then there's a two-hour discussion. Again, you have six forums, and uh, these six discussions take place simultaneously. And then they meet Saturday afternoon in an informal setting where all these things Again, it's a consensus kind of thing. Nobody threatens anybody. It's not, you know, it's it's very important to understand for all these conspiracy nuts out there that it's not like, you know, this all-seeing Illuminati pyramid eye staring at you, making you do things. It's not like that at all. And if you go on, uh, uh, what you said about the... Uh, you know, the book structure, you know, the first section is Bilderberg, then you have the CFR, then you have the Trilateral Commission. But even that, Bonnie, there's, you know, there's, there's a reason why it broke this into three separate sections, although they're very interlocked amongst themselves. Uh, because, for example, 
You know, at the end of January, you have your uh, Davos Economic Forum. Then uh, about March or so, you have your uh, Trilateral Commission Regional Meeting. Uh, April, you have your CFR thing. May, June, you have the Bilderbergers. September, October, you have the International Monetary uh, World Bank Meeting. But nobody's leading these things. There's no, like, all-seeing eye, God, you know, character who's there telling everybody what to do. It's just this one thing effortlessly flows into another thing. But before you know it, decisions taken at once suddenly become, you know, the policy debate issues of the European Central Bank or the European Parliament, which are then passed on to national governments in Europe, which are then passed on to local and regional governments. And before you know it, you know, they're talking about, for example, the United Nations Army, something which was first discussed in the early 1990s and which just again came up last year in Canada. Anyway, do you see how it works? It's, it's not a conspiracy in any way. It's just a group of people very, in a very organized form working together towards a very common goal. And how, uh, how would you describe the common goal? Now, is there an agreement among these people? I mean, for instance, what you've described in terms of the IMF, the World Bank, the Trilateral Commission... Uh, the Council on Foreign Relations, the Bilderbergers, etc., meeting at certain times each year. I mean, there is a structure here that you say that information, the consensus, the opinions, the ideas flow from one one group and one meeting, and there's overlap, etc. So, so there's a structure, and there must be a goal. What, in a broad sense, would you say the goal is? Okay, I'll tell you what the goal is, and also explain to you the structure. Uh, the goal is not one world uh, order, which, you know, we've heard this phrase so many times. And, you know, uh, unfortunately, you know, this one world order phrase, uh, there's been several one world orders throughout history, going all the way back to the Roman times. It's more of a concept of one world government, where you have one government, one constitution, one country, one region, you know, one currency. And you could see it right now, in Europe, you know, you used to have currencies, countries, constitutions, flags, nations, borders. Now you have one nation called Europe, one flag called European flag, you know, blue with little stars, one currency called the Euro, one constitution, which takes precedence over every other national constitution in times of crisis, which you know how easily can be orchestrated in, in when the need arises. So again, the idea is to create not one world order, but rather one world government. And people like Kenneth Clark, in 1999, he was a member of, you know, British Bilderberg member. In 1999, in Sintra, in, in Portugal, he admitted it publicly that, yes, you know, the idea is to merge these, fuse these economic blocks into one economic block, because just, you know, in, for bureaucratic purposes, it just makes it much easier to keep track and to control when you have one currency instead of when you have multiple currencies. Well, I can certainly see the consolidation of Europe, and of course we're now witnessing, and it's coming out more into the public, the consolidation perhaps of North America. But when you say one world government, uh, that seems a bit over the top. What purpose would that serve? Well, um, again, what... uh Today's called the uh, Bilderberg Group or the Bilderberg Club. Historic, I can demonstrate, 550 years ago, it was called the Venetian Black Nobility. I spent two and a half years investigating in the National Library of Florence. And again, the roots are there. The plan has always been the same when you're talking about what's their objectives. 550 years ago, uh, when we had our first birth of what is known now as the nation-state under uh, the reign of Louis XI in France and then Henry VII in uh, 
in England, for the first time in history, mankind was no longer working for the government.